We are in a series called Life with God. And what we're asking, really, the question that we're asking is, what is the life that God says that he gives us? Is there really a life that is qualitatively different than the life that we normally live? Is there really anything to the promise? Now, we all, we all have been taught that if, you know, you get into Christianity and you accept Jesus, that you're going to get heaven when you die. And that's a great promise. I mean, absolutely a great promise. But Jesus really offered something that was so much more, which is an abundant life now, a life that's even better now. And so uh, that's what we want to talk about. What is that life that's offered to us now that we don't need to wait for, that we can step into right at this point? And we've been using, uh, during this series, we have two weeks to go, we've been using in this series a house as a metaphor that God relates to us in three floors. He relates to us uh, in basement issues, which are the issues that aren't so great, that we don't like, that we wish we could change, that God wants to change in us, and we talked about that for a while. We talked about the main floor. God relates to us in our just day-to-day, normal, mostly mundane lives. He relates to us in that. He cares about that. He interacts. He has plans for us. And then last week, we introduced you to the upper room, uh, which is this idea of, of being with God face-to-face. And uh, so many of us feel that God is still distant from us, that he really isn't face-to-face. There's not an intimacy there anyway. And so what we're doing, finishing up the series, is talking about this idea that he really wants intimacy with us. He wants something uh, that feels very different than how we normally interact with him. And last week we talked about adoption, that he adopts us into his family more than saves us. He adopts us into his family. Today what we want to do is talk about the most important, most central, most foundational uh, part of relating to God. And in fact, this word is used over 250 times in the Bible. It is used more than the word generosity or joy or even love. It is the word faith. Faith is the word that's used over and over and over again. And what's so interesting is most of us aren't exactly sure what we're talking about when we talk about faith. So that's what we want to do today is sort of pull back the veil on faith. What is faith? And so I have a question for you just to start us off. And uh, you don't need to shout out answers or anything, but I want you to think about this for a second. Maybe even whisper what you think to your neighbor. What is faith? What would you say faith is okay so just whisper to the person next to you this is what i think faith is if i'm going to say it this is what it's going to be go ahead go really quiet all right let me let me throw out another question what is the opposite of faith what would you say what would be some things that would be the opposite of faith and you can yell those out what do you think what's the opposite of faith what what was that Seeing as believing. Okay, good. That's a good answer. What else? Skepticism. What else? Fear. How about doubt? All right. Let me give you a word that was sort of said, but I'll say it in another way. You know what the opposite of faith is? Certainty. Certainty is the opposite of faith. Turning your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. If you don't have your Bibles, we have people that would love to get you a Bible. Just raise your hand. We're going to camp in Hebrews 11 today. So you just one turn, Hebrews 11, near the end of the New Testament. Go to Hebrews 11, and we're going to read a verse that talks to us, actually defines faith for us. Hebrews 11, uh, verse 1. 
and we'll bring it up on the screen, but go to Hebrews 11 because uh, you're going to need to look at a few things in there, all right? And let's read it together. It says this, now faith is, all right, we're, uh, sorry, when I say let's read this, I meant all of us, so, and like all of us aloud, not like you silently and I'm reading, okay, so let's read it aloud, here we go. Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. Now, it's really interesting. That's sort of a, you know, sort of a phrase, a verse that you're like, mm, I'm not sure I understand what it is. But, but here's the key words in that. Hope for. When you hope for something, it means something like you don't have it yet, right? I mean, that's what hope, you can't hope in something you already have. You hope in something you don't have. And so, you see, if you have certainty about something, it's not hope anymore. Hope means that it's faith. All right? And then it says assurance about what we do not see. Do not see. See, when we see something, then it's not faith anymore because it's certainty. If you see it, then it's like seeing's believing. I've got it. No problem. But you see, faith is something you don't see yet. And so let me say something that will really surprise you. There is always an element of doubt in faith. And you're thinking, oh no, people that are really, really faith-filled have no doubts. No. Somebody that has no doubts has certainty, and we don't have certainty yet. There is an element of faith. Faith always mixes belief with at least some sort of doubt. And you see, it's that tension. It's the tension between the belief and the doubt that God says there's something really good about that. And in fact, he goes on to say this. When you act as those my promises have already happened, when you act as if the promise is already true, when you behave that way, even though it hasn't come true yet, but when you behave that way, when you live your life that way, when you organize yourself that way, there is something that is so precious to me that you would do that in spite of doubt, in spite of not having certainty, you're still moving forward. And God, for some reason, has said, the whole shebang is based on that dynamic, on that dynamic of not being certain, but still moving forward, still believing, still trusting, still acting as though God is good for his word. And God just says, that's what it's all about. That's what we're talking about here. That is what faith is. Now, let me ask a second question. Why is faith so important? If God said that's what faith is, and he said, I'm going to base everything on it, the whole foundation of Christianity, the whole way I relate with you is going to be faith, why would he do that? And in fact, he says these words now in Hebrews 11, verse 6. Hebrews 11, verse 6. He says, and without faith, it is impossible to please God, because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. So he makes a really staggering statement. And uh, again, you need to pause for a second and just think about this. He says, if you don't have faith, it is impossible to please God. 
He doesn't say it's just like kind of hard or that's not really the A way to go. He says you can't go any other way. There's no other way to relate to God if faith isn't a part of it. And again, if you're kind of a church person, you're like, yeah, well, I've heard that. I know that faith is really important and I know, you know, you got to kind of have that faith thing going. But let's just talk about this for a second. Okay, so what he's saying here is just being a really loving person is not a way to please God. That seems weird. Just like helping out others, maybe helping people in need, maybe making tremendous sacrifices for the benefit of others. He says, if there's not faith involved, that doesn't please God. Just coming to church, just giving a whole bunch of money, you know, being super religious, even talking about Jesus to other people, all of those things. What he says here is, if there's not faith involved, you think you're pleasing God. Of course, you think you're doing it. What he's saying here is you're not pleasing God because without faith, he says it's impossible. You can't do it. Why would he say that? Especially, here's the problem. Here's the big problem, and it's a problem for me is we are all prone toward trying to prove to God that like salvation and abundant life is something that we have earned, that it's worthwhile, that we've done our part. When I was um, eight years old, uh, I became a Cub Scout. Now, let me ask, how many of you have been a Cub Scout, a Boy Scout, a Girl Scout, a Brownie, something like that, okay? Okay, you know, about half of you, great. All right, so... When you get into that, and those are wonderful organizations, but they are not faith-based organizations, okay? So when you get in that, uh, they give you things called badges, right? And as a Cub Scout, there was a badge that immediately, uh, after you got the Bobcat, uh, the next one, anyone know the next one after the Bobcat, is the wolf, the wolf. I think it's the wolf. That's what I remember, the wolf. But I remember Bobcat was really easy to get, but then the wolf was significant. And they gave you a little manual, right? And you had, you had all these things that if you did these things, you would get the wolf badge. And there were things like uh, um, learning how to tie a slip knot. You remember that? All right, we're just not tracking here. Okay, <laughs> do brownies not tie slip knots? Okay, sorry, brown, women, you can't relate. Men, you can relate if you were a Boy Scout. Or you built a birdhouse, right? What kind of Cub Scout were you? <laughs> None of you got the wolf badge? Helping little ladies across the street? Come on now. Yeah. All right. I don't think we actually had to do that. I don't think they'd entrust little ladies to us. But here's, you know, we had to do all these things. And the idea was, if you did them, no one could argue with you that you deserve the wolf badge. You get the wolf badge. It doesn't matter if you like your leader, don't like the leader. It doesn't even matter if you like Cub Scouts, don't like Cub Scouts. If you do the stuff, you get the badge. It's just, it's a contract. And, you know, we are so geared as people, especially American people, people that are like, there's no challenge I can't meet. There's no deed I can't do. If I put my mind to it and we live in the greatest country in the history of the world, which, you know, that's all true, and just give me the opportunity and I'll make it happen. Kairos! All right, sorry, different message. All right, and so there's sort of this idea of just come on, I can do it. And do you know, this is such an interesting thing, every major religion in the world 
except for Christianity, bases their salvation on some kind of to-do list. So whether it's Buddhism that has the eightfold path, or it's uh, Hinduism has sort of this three three path thing to liberation, they call it, the three paths to liberation. Or um, in Judaism, the seven laws of Noah, don't know if you've ever heard of that, but it's the, the seven laws of Noah, the reason it's for Noah before Abraham is because it's for all of mankind, not just for the Jewish race. If, if you're in Islam, here's the way that it works for you. Unless you're willing to die in a jihad, in a holy war, which guarantees you salvation, otherwise the way that it works for you is you don't know if you're in until the judgment day when you will stand before a holy God and he will calculate the stuff that you've done right against the stuff that you've done wrong. And on that day, you'll hope that the stuff that you've done right outweighs the other side. Because at that point, there's nothing to do about it. It's based on how good were you. And I'm not slamming those religions. I'm just saying Christianity is different than that. Christianity does not go down that road. It does not say, work really, really hard. And if you work hard and you are basically good, then God will have a relationship with you. Instead, there is this really weird idea, this concept of faith. It isn't based on works. At one point, Paul is teaching people and he says, I know you love the works thing so much but you're not saved because of works. You're saved because, what would Paul say? You're saved because of faith, because of your faith. Now, this rubs so wrong in so many ways because we look around and we say, good people should be rewarded for being good. And yet it seems in God's economy that that's not what he takes into consideration. That's not what he's looking at. Uh, years ago, uh, a couple came into my office, and uh, Sharon and Reed, and Sharon was a new Christian. She was so excited. They were both uh, it, probably in their late 30s. They had raised a family. Reed had been a very successful uh, business guy. And um, as they came in, Sharon was so excited that she'd just become a Christian, and Reed was just confounded. And he had been coming to church, and he was liking church, and he was liking all that kind of stuff. But he was really getting tripped up on this faith thing. And he said, I've got to talk to you about this faith thing. He goes, from, from the time that I can remember growing up, I've always thought that working hard is the key to success in life. And that's how I've run my whole life. And my businesses have been successful because of it. And when I've worked hard, I've seen myself rise. And when I'm lazy or I don't do what I should do, then I see myself falling back. And he goes, this faith thing, I just can't do it. I can't do the faith thing. I can't just believe like that. And he goes, I'm, I'm really struggling because I see now in my wife, she has something I don't have, but I don't know how to get where she's at. He goes, I don't do faith. That's the problem. I don't do faith. And so I said, okay, all right, I get it. Reed, uh, do you love your wife? He goes, absolutely. I said, Really? And do you trust her? He said, without a doubt. I said, well, that must mean you're with her all the time. 
He goes, no. I said, well, how can you trust her? You're not with her all the time. Like when she tells you she's going to do something, how do you know she's going to do it? Or if she tells you she's not going to do it, how do you know she didn't if you're not actually with her? And he said, well, duh, I trust her. I said, Reed, you have all kinds of faith. You have tons of faith in your wife. The issue here is not that you don't know how to have faith. The issue is you don't know how to have faith in God. You have plenty of faith. You live your whole life. The most important relationship in your life with your wife is based on faith. And you see, this is the key. This is so important. This is the key of why God says faith is it. Is because faith is a relationship term. Faith has to do with relationship. And here's the reality. Any relationship that any of you have, any relationship, you go across the board, if you consider it a good relationship, there is a lot of faith in that relationship. There is a lot of trust. There's a lot of belief. There's a lot of pleasing the other person, not because you're earning something, right? You're not earning something. You're doing it simply because you, please, you like them. You know, you're going to get them a Christmas present, not because you're trying to earn something from them, not in a good relationship. It's because it's your delight to do something that brings a smile to their face. You see, that's what faith is. That's all that faith is. Faith is not some mystical term. It's not some magical term. It's not some just spiritual term. It is just a term that means trust. And every relationship is built on it. And it's why God says, that's why it's so important to me. Because I'm not interested in a bunch of people just working their brains out trying to earn something. We're talking adoption. We're talking a parent with a child. We're talking relationship. And God says, I love relationship. That's what it's all about for me. It's relationship. And faith is the way that relationships are built. Does that make sense? Is that an awesome thing that the God of the universe is not so keyed up about us earning something? He just says, I want to relate with you. I want a relationship with you. That's why faith carries the day. That's why it's impossible to please me without faith because I want you to interact and love me and I want to love you. That's what it's all about. So, next question is, how do you build this kind of faith? And uh, a while back, I was with my mom and um, my mom is not a believer, but we went to a Billy Graham crusade. She said she would go with me to a Billy Graham crusade. And it was years ago when he was at Anaheim Stadium. And so, you know, and I had no clue how she'd feel about the Billy Graham thing. But we went, and for the only time I've ever heard him uh, live in front of a stadium like that. And so it was, you know, it was cool and all that kind of stuff. And we were walking out, and I was just wondering, because, you know, Billy Graham kind of gets after it, and he's pretty straightforward about the gospel. So I was wondering what my mom would think. And she said, there is something so amazing about Christians. Really. She goes, I've never been in an environment like this with like, whatever, 40,000 people, mostly Christians. She, it's just, she goes, amazing. And she says, you know what, Kevin, I can see in your life how Christianity has really changed your life. And I love the changes it's made in your life. She said, here's my problem. I can't believe it. She goes, how do you make yourself believe something that you just don't believe? She says, I just don't believe it. And it's a great question, right? How do you believe something you don't believe? Do you just like, 
try really hard. I'm going to believe. And she was like, I can't do that. And it brings up a question. Is there anything you can do to build your faith? Is there any kind of path you can go on where there's actually activity? Because we say that works don't earn salvation. But I do want to say this. You do work to build your faith. You do work to build your faith. And you shouldn't think it's that strange because you work to build every relationship that's worthwhile. No relationship just happens. You do things that help it and you do things that hurt it. And if you do enough things that help it, you get a good, healthy relationship. And it's exactly the same in our relationship with God. So let me tell you a story. In uh, the 1900s, 1860, there was a tight, uh, tightrope walking guy named Blondin the Great. And uh, he decided that he was going to try and make a name for himself by crossing Niagara Falls on a tightrope, a thousand feet long, 160 feet above the falls. And so he started doing it, and day after day, as he went back and forth across the tightrope, more and more crowds would come out to see him, and pretty soon it was just packed. People from all over New York State and Canada and from the surrounding areas would come to watch this amazing man, you know, defy death by crossing this tightrope. And to start spicing it up, he started doing things like carrying things across the wire or walking on stilts across the wire. I mean, can you imagine that? And I mean, all of it without a net and certain death, you know, if he falls. And day after day, he'd go back and forth and back and forth. And uh, so one day he was doing it and he was on one side and he grabbed a wheelbarrow and he wheeled the wheelbarrow across. Everybody was going totally crazy, totally wild, totally excited about it. He gets to the other side. The other side, as soon as his feet hit you know, dry ground, they just explode in thunderous applause. And so he's over there. And he goes up to this big guy, and there's this guy that's like louder than anyone, and he's so excited that Blondin has crossed the way. And, and so he's just yelling and clapping, and Blondin comes up to him, and the crowd hushes down because it's clear Blondin's going to talk to this guy. And he says, he says, sir, have we ever met before? And the man says, no, we haven't. And he said, sir, have you ever seen anything so amazing as me walking across? And he goes, absolutely not. And this guy's sort of a ham too, so he's getting into it. And he loves that the crowd erupts with everything he says. And he says, sir, do you think that I can go back across there without falling? And the man says, without a doubt. He says, do you believe that I could wheel this wheelbarrow across there and not fall? And he goes, I know you can. And then he looks at the man and he says, then get in. Woo! <laughs> That's faith. That's faith. Right? I want to talk about what it would take for you to get in the wheelbarrow. Because that's what is building faith. Building faith is getting into the wheelbarrow. There's three components to building faith. And the reason that we suffer with faith is because we don't work in these areas. We don't, maybe we don't even see a correlation, and there's a direct correlation. So here's the first thing. There's an intellectual part of building our faith. There's things we need to know to build our faith, right? There are things that we've got to have in our mind. Um, 
in Romans 10, 17, when Paul is talking about building faith, he says these words. He says, consequently, faith comes from hearing the message and the message is heard through the word about Christ. And so Paul realized as he traveled around and talked to people that didn't know anything about Jesus, didn't know anything about Christianity, that they had to be taught first. That you can't have faith in something you know nothing about. I mean, that's not faith. That's just foolishness. You need to know something about it. And so Paul was really focused. And we read about the early church. In the early church, it says that the apostles taught all the time because people didn't have information. And you need information if you're going to believe in something. You, to have faith, you've got to have information. And so uh, what we're told here is the information that's the most important thing that comes our way is to know God's word, is to know the Bible. We've got to know the Bible if we want to grow in our faith. You've got to know that. And here's the problem. So many of us are really lazy or, or are really intimidated by the Bible, so we don't really try to read it. And um, if, if what you say is, yes, but I go to a church where they teach it, great, great, but really, really, is that all it takes? Is listening to somebody speak, you know, once a week, for a little while about the Bible? Is that really all it's going to take to intellectually give you everything that you need so that your faith is vibrant and growing and you have this trust because you just know things? And here's what I want to tell you. I'm not, I'm really, I'm not, uh, I'm, I'm trying to challenge you and not shame you on it. It's not a shame issue. It's something we all deal with. But um, let me just put it this way. I know that it's hard to read the Bible. I know that it's written like 2,000 years ago and even in a sort of a friendly version. It doesn't always make sense. It doesn't read like a Grisham novel. I know that. It's not like I just couldn't put it down. It was so amazing. No, it's like plodding through it and trying to understand it. And it's like, I don't get what this says. And oh my gosh, you know. So I understand that. You know, it's not like your spirituality is measured by how thrilled you are with reading the Bible all the time. It's a discipline for most of us. It takes time and energy, and it takes work. It, you know, it just takes focus, and you've got to exercise some muscles you don't exercise. But let me ask you this question. If, uh, for those of you that are unmarried, okay, we'll make this an unmarried uh, question. Uh, if all of a sudden you fell in love with someone uh, who only spoke Spanish, okay, and that's obviously why this is for single people. Uh, if all of a sudden that happened to you, and they wrote you a letter, in Spanish, and you don't speak a word of Spanish, would you look at that letter and say, well, bummer. Guess I don't get to read that thing. Guess that's the end of that. No, not if you're in love. If you're in love, you'd figure out how to get that thing interpreted so that you could understand it. You'd be highly motivated. Well, you know, God has written us a letter, and it was written a long time ago. And it was written to a different culture. So there's some things that have to do with that for us to really get the meaning. But it's not impossible to understand it. It just takes some work, right? It just takes some work. When I became a Christian in high school, and I was a total non-churchgoer, and I was not really much, I was not like the student. I was not the smart of a guy. And so somebody gave me a King James Bible and said I needed to read it if I wanted to grow in my faith. And, uh, and I, gosh, King James, have you guys read King James? That was a pain, pain. I mean, there, it's not only that it's, you know, it's English that we haven't used for 400 years. So it's just like, whoa. So anyway, but I started plodding through it. I didn't even know the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. I didn't even know what that meant. And I just started studying it. And it was slow going and it was hard. 
And then finally somebody gave me a version that made a little more sense to me. Um, but, and, and the reason I'm saying this is I'm just like you if you don't understand the Bible. That's exactly where I was. And I'm not that smart. You know, I'm not, I'm not really not that disciplined. But somehow I got to know the Bible by doing it. And I'm just saying you can do that. You really can. It's just a question of commitment of I'm going to study the Bible. Now, you're not studying the Bible to earn God's love. You're studying God's Bible to, to learn about his love. You know, to, to understand him and to be able to please him and to understand how he pleases you. That's what it's for. It's a love letter. It's a love letter from God to you. Your father to the adopted child. That's what it is. So here's very cool. We're coming up to the beginning of a new year, and Mariners always puts out a Bible reading plan. And uh, we're not quite ready for it today, but next week we're going to have a Bible reading plan for you. And if you're sort of like, you know what? I want to give that a try. I want to start reading the Bible on a daily basis. We're going to have a plan, and we're going to invite you and challenge you to do it. And here's what I want to say. You want your faith to grow. You've got to engage your mind, and you've got to know God's word. You just have to study that. There is no shortcut. There's no other way around it. Intellectually, that's what it takes. And you can do it. You can absolutely do it. I know that you can do it. All right, so that's the first thing, intellectual. Second thing you need to have is an emotional commitment to, uh, to growing in your relationship with God, your emotions. And just with Blondin, just as it was with Blondin, where there was sort of an intellectual side of watching him go across and intellectually understanding he could do it. And then there was an emotional side of being with the crowds and they're all thrilled and you're getting caught up in the moment. And that's a cool part of Christianity is the emotional part of it. And many of us just sort of neglect that. We don't really focus on the emotion. Some of us say, well, I'm not an emotional person, so I don't do that. And it's like, that's not true. I was going to say something else, but I'm just going to say that's not true. You are an emotional person. Get in front of a football game that you care about and see if you're an emotional person. Or watch the end of a romantic comedy and see if you're an emotional person. Everybody's emotional at something. And God says, I want you to engage me with your emotions, really, with your emotions too. Now, here's the reason that you would say emotion and my you know, Christianity don't go together is because you're being forced in to an emotional way of engaging with God that doesn't work for you. That's a huge problem. Like, all right, so let me just ask, I'll ask you a question. For how many of you, you would say, when I sing in church, when there's a worship segment in church and I sing and it's a song that I know and love and so forth, and I just, you know, that for me is worship. I, I feel emotionally engaged. I emotionally engage in that. Just raise your hand if that's the case for you. Now, be bold here. For how many of you would say, that is not the way for me? Okay. Either we're not that honest or we really like our worship music and we should do more of it. All right. I would say, generally speaking, about 50-50 in just places I've seen it. About half people would say, yes, that totally works for me. And half the people would say, you know, if we didn't do the worship part at all, I'd be okay. And then they're made to feel shameful, like, well, what's wrong with you? Don't you love Jesus? You would sing songs to him if you loved him. And you're like, I don't sing songs to anyone, you know? I'm just not a singer. Music doesn't do it for me. Well, the reason is because you're not wired that way. How many of you would say, when I get out into nature, 
and I just see the majesty of God in mountains or ocean or whatever it is, I feel closer to God. I feel closer to God. How many of you would say that? Okay. And then some of you would say, no, doesn't work for me. Doesn't make any difference. We're wired differently. There was a great book, Sacred Pathways by Gary Thomas, and I'm bringing the, the title just up on the, the, the thing so that if you guys want to get it, it's a great book about this, and it gives about seven or eight different ways that people connect with God. And here's my point. We connect in different ways. For some of you, how many of you would say, in a church like this, I know we don't do this, how many of you would say when you go into like a magnificent Catholic church, let's say with stained glass and organs and, and you go through a liturgy of some sort, that that is powerful to you and it moves you emotionally? How many of you would say that? Okay. And then a lot of you would say, no, that's why I'm not at that church. I'm at this church. But here's the point. Here's the point. We engage with God in different ways. And then here's the last point. You're responsible to stoke that fire. It's up to you. If you know what it is, then do it. Engage God emotionally. It makes such a huge difference on the faith side of things. And then the final thing here is uh, to engage God with volitional action. With volitional action. And in fact, if you go through, and in Hebrews 11, what we're looking at, it it gives sort of a list or um, several stories, short summaries of stories in the Old and New Testament where people showed faith. And it's interesting because every place that it shows faith, um, it's an action. It's shown by an action. And I just want to make it really clear. This is not an action to win God's love. It's an action responding to God's love. You see, it's because he already loved me that I do these things. Because I want to please him, not to earn salvation or to earn his love. It's because he loves me, and I want to show him that I love him back. So uh, James says these words, sort of in a famous uh, statement about this. In James 2, it says, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? See, the Holy Spirit just came into the room. Did you hear that? (laughs) Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. And just again, be super clear here. This is not a works theology. It's not like you earn God's love. It's saying if you believe something, but there's never any evidence that you believe it. Do you really believe it? If you're married and you say, well, I love my spouse, or that, that terrible line, you know, when somebody, the, the wife says to the husband, why don't you ever tell me you love me? And he says, well, I told you I loved you the day that we got married. And if that changes, I'll let you know. And it's like, no, 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 no. Uh, yeah, don't try that line. I'm telling you, that's not a good line. That's not a good line. But uh, here's the deal. If you said you loved your spouse, and there was absolutely no signs ever that you loved your spouse. You know what? I'd feel fairly confident saying, that's BS, pal. You don't love your spouse because there would be evidence of it. There'd be some way that I'd see it. Some action would be different if you really loved your spouse. It is not all a heart thing. It's not all a, well, it's all on the inside. No. Something that is true, something you believe, something you have faith in, works its way out. It just does. It's the way things are. And that's all James is saying here. If you have no works, 
then you better wonder if you have any faith because faith demonstrates itself. And in, in the Hebrew stories, uh, all the stories in Hebrews 11, all of the examples are somebody that showed their faith by something they did. So Moses led the people out of Egypt. So Abraham was willing to sacrifice his son. So Daniel stood in a lion's den and stood for God rather than cowering back. In every example, it's not, you're not earning salvation by doing it. You're demonstrating that you already have a relationship with God that you're saying, I'm willing to stake my life on it. It's the most important thing in my life, and my, my life will show it. You see, that's, that's what it is. So I want to ask you this question. Where is God calling you to get in the wheelbarrow? Where in your life is God saying, get in? There's almost always a place where God's inviting us. And to the degree that you push him off and say, are you serious? That's crazy. Only a fanatic would do that. You know, only somebody that is just crazy would do that. God says, no, somebody that believes that what I told you is true would do it too. Somebody who believes that I could take you back over the tightrope in the wheelbarrow would get in. Right now, I'm working through something, uh, a challenge that I have right now that's sort of a leadership challenge. And I'll tell you, my natural inclination uh, many times when something like this happens, uh, especially if it's uncomfortable and especially if I'm not certain what I should do, is I just sort of freeze. And I just wait. And I hope it works out. And I just sit and I wait and I sit and I wait. And this morning, uh, as I was walking our dog and praying about this message and thinking about this, I am so clear on the fact that God's saying, now's not the time to wait, Kevin. Now's the time to move. I need you to move even if you're not sure what to do. I need you to trust me. He's saying, I need you to get in. I know you don't know how it's going to work out. I know you know that. And that's okay. I'm not asking you to figure out how to work it out. I'm saying, just get in, and we'll do this together. Get in and trust me. Don't pull back, Kevin. Don't wait right now. You need to move. For some of you, what you need to hear, because you're charging, is God saying, I need you to wait. You need to wait. You're running around like a chicken with its head cut off. You need to wait. For some of you, you need to go apologize. You know you need to apologize. And it's going to take humble pie to do it. And you know that's where God's saying, get in. you got to apologize. For others of you, you need to forgive. They didn't even apologize to you. And you need to forgive. Because that's where God's saying, get in. You're holding bitterness. You're justifying. You're saying, I can have fantasize about terrible things happening to that person. Because that person hurt me. And God's saying, I'm telling you to get in the wheelbarrow and forgive. For some of you, it's like John Cale. Give. I know your finances are messed up. I know you've got Christmas. I know there's all kinds of things happening. How much do you trust me? You're going to give a penny to the stuff that I do? Are you going to give more than you're comfortable with? With John Cale, that was the thing. For a lot of you, that's probably the thing. God's saying, get in. You're going to trust me with your money? 
Are you going to keep on holding on to it? You see, all of us have a place to get in. And that's what faith is all about. We grow in our faith, study the Bible, emotionally engage, and we get in. That's what we do. Bow your heads, would you? I want to just pray for us as we think about this. Lord, you are so amazing. And it amazes me that your greatest desire with me is not that I'd be the best person ever, not that I'd earn something, but that you just want me to relate to you, to have faith, to trust you, to have a relationship. That is so awesome. And I pray that we would get that truth because that truly is how we get into the upper room. It's truly how we relate to you is through faith. This week, Lord, as we wrestle with these things, whether it's committing to read the Bible or it's emotionally engaging or it's getting in in some place where you've asked us, called us to trust you, I pray that you would help us take that step. Strengthen us as we move forward and build our faith. You are a great God and you are worthy to be trusted. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.